Grove. A special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boyan. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This show is created to give a voice to former pro players and personalities, allowing them to share some of the greatest stories this game has to tell. So let's take a trip to the heart of the classic hockey universe and celebrate the history of the game with the select few who actually lived it. Episode 63 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features a look back at the Kansas City Scouts NHL franchise with author Troy Treasure and my review of the historic New England Whalers upset win over the Soviet national team on December 27, 1976. Troy Treasure's book, Icing on the Plains, is the story of Kansas City's attempt to integrate Major League Hockey into its sports marketplace, only to see it all fall through thin ice. Painstakingly researched, Icing on the Plains features great hockey stories and some of the most colorful people in the game. In this interview, we'll recall the triumphs and tragedies of this often forgotten franchise that would go on to become the Colorado Rockies and eventually the New Jersey Devils. In our previous two episodes, you've heard some of the scout stories from Dennis Herron and Robin Burns. And in this episode, we'll complete our KC Scouts trilogy with discussions about the scouts and NHL personalities such as Wilfred Paymont, Steve Durbano, Michelle Plass, Simon Nolet, Sid Abel, Dan Kelly, Bep Gidlin, Peter McDuff, and many more. Before talking with Troy, I'll review the New England Whalers' improbable WHA win over the touring Soviet national team in 1976, a game that was easily the top game of the Whalers' WHA years in Hartford. And Whalers center Mike Rogers will help us recall some moments from this great game in Hartford hockey history. We greatly appreciate all of you who have subscribed, rated, and reviewed the PHA podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. You've helped make the show more visible to fans around the world. In fact, we are now ranked among the top hockey podcasts in the U.S. and Canada. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show. We greatly appreciate your support. Remember, home base for the show is ProHockeyAlumni.org. Reach out anytime with comments or suggestions. Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is joined with NHL alumni Tom Laidlaw, Frank Simonetti, and Ken Hodge Jr. in support of the Warrior for Life Fund and the Navy SEAL Foundation. Please visit warriorforlifefund.org for more information. Now, let's talk classic hockey. And now, ladies and gentlemen, once again, let's have a greeting for your New England Whalers. On December 27, 1976, the New England Whalers were clinging to fourth place in the WHA's East Division. Coach Harry Neal's crew had suffered an uninspiring 4-1 loss at a touring Czech team a week earlier, and as a sellout crowd of 10,507 settled into their Hartford Civic Center seats, 
there was little reason to believe the whales would perform any better against the superior Soviet Union. Making the contest even more foreboding for the whalers was the absence of their top three defensemen, Rick Lee, Brad Selwood, and Tommy Abrahamson. In fact, you could make the case that the Whalers' lineup on this specific night was the weakest lineup of any Whalers team in any single game in their entire 27-year existence. While the line of Tom Webster, Mike Rogers, and George Lyle was among the WHA's best, the Whalers would also need contributions from slow-skating enforcers like Dale Smedsmo and James Troy, as well as minor league call-ups and cast-offs like Gary Swain, Gary McGregor, Tom Earl, and Danny Arndt. Due to the aforementioned injuries, his defense featured just two pairings, 18-year-old Gordy Roberts with his brother Doug Roberts and Alan Hanksleben with Ron Busnick. The Whalers goaltender, Cap Raider, who also spent the early part of the season in the AHL, would play just 28 regular season games in the WHA. And on this night, he'd have to duel Vladislav Tretiak, considered by many to be the world's premier goaltender. Now, this was the first of a eight-game WHA tour for the Soviets, and the potential for jet lag loomed. In addition, injuries would sideline the top line of Valery Harmelov, Boris Mihailov, and Sergei Petrov. Still, the Soviet team was loaded with legends like Alexander Yakushev, Alexander Maltsev, Vladimir Shadrin, Boris Alexandrov, Helmut Balderas, and many more. Calling the action for PBS in the U.S. was Spencer Ross, with color commentary from hockey neophyte Bill Rasmussen, who would soon be fired by the Whalers. But of course, he'd find redemption by creating the Entertainment and Sports Network, ESPN. Incidentally, the Whalers' PA announcer is Scott Rasmussen, now best known for his political polling agency, Rasmussen Reports. Now let's catch the action in the first period of the game when Gary Swain, who played just 27 WHA games in this season, thrilled the crowd with the game's first goal on a deflection of a Doug Roberts shot. Luchenko, stepped in by Doug Roberts, puts a drop Taking the lead by a score of one nothing. Number 20, New England. Swain's old penalty-killing partner, Tommy Earl, recalled from the AHL earlier in the day, gave the Whalers a two-goal bulge when he sailed a 35-foot wrister past a stunned Tratiak at 15-26. Bosnick on the rebound. This is Swain. Out of the penalty box, Bialyidinov. And now out of the box comes Roberts. Tommy Earl coming in to score! And the Whalers lead it to nothing. This is Tommy Earl, just called back today from Providence to play in this game. 
Goalie Cap Raider then made his only mistake of the night when he whiffed on a long Alexander Maltsev wrist shot. But Gary McGregor reestablished the Whalers' two-goal lead with a deflection of a Denny Bulldog shot at 17-19 in its 3-1 Whalers. Thanks, Laban shoots back. Bolden around Leopold. It's Trediak appears to have it, and then it's deflected in. Danny Bolden makes it a 3-1 hockey game. I don't know if he's going to give credit to Bolduck or to McGregor. 21 and 12, Bolduck fired it, and McGregor was climbing all over Trediak in the goal mouth, and I don't know. I thought that if he got his stick on it, it would have been too high and disallowed to Bill Friday waved it off, so presumably, well, let's look it. Twelve, Gary McGregor. It was McGregor getting the goal. Assisted by number 21, Danny Bolduck. And number nine, Ralph Backstrom. Time of the goal, 17. Gary McGregor is an interesting story. He scored 100 goals for the OHA Cornwall Royals in 1973-74. And he followed that with a 42-goal rookie campaign with the WHA Chicago Cougars in 74-75. However, his career fell off dramatically thereafter. He played just 30 games for the Whalers in this 76-77 season before being dispatched to the Indianapolis Racers. Tragically, McGregor passed away suddenly at the age of just 40 years old. The Whalers ended period one with a 19-8 shot advantage and a 3-1 lead, but that surely would be reversed in period two. The Soviets outshot the Whalers 13-3 in that middle stanza amidst numerous power play chances, but Raider repelled each Soviet attempt. In fact, the Soviets would have a whopping 12 power play opportunities on this night. The Soviets continued their assault in period three when Hall of Famer Alexander Yakushev closed the gap to 3-2 with a goal at 5-22. Yakushev, he's been foiled tonight. Saved by Cap Raider. And Danny Arn has it for the Whalers. New England leading 3-1. We're in the third period. Victor Shalomov. A good move. The save by Raider. Rebound. Yakushev scores. Can only hold him off the board so long. And Yakushev, there you see him. Big left winger makes it 3-2 to two at 5 minutes, 22 seconds of the period. This was the point when many figured the game surely would turn for the Soviets. But tough guy James Troy, who totaled exactly zero points in 23 career Whalers games, threaded a perfect pass from the right wing boards to George Lyle near the crease, and suddenly it was 4-2 Whalers. Here's Gordy Roberts. Two good defensive plays by Robert Thomas. Troy, a good score! Jim Troy with a perfect centering pass, and George Lyle was there to make it 4-2. Jim Troy on that one, number 25, taking a shift in place of Tom Webster on that line with Lyle and Rogers, and he laid a perfect pass in front. For the big rookie from Michigan Tech to pop behind the goaltender. A two-goal lead was always shaky against this explosive Soviet squad, but the game was settled when, in the game's final minute, 
George Lyle deep straight Jack for his second goal of the night, and the Hartford Civic Center crowd exploded into a bedlam. Swain, Earl, McGregor, and Lyle, Yakishev and Malsev have scored for the Soviet team, and we're into the final minute of the hockey game. Bent, Barry flow to Rogers. Here's the break pass to Lyle coming in. Score! Lyle pretty up to make it five to two. Look at the Whalers out on the ice, on that. To congratulate George Lyle, what a pass out front. And look at the Hartford Civic Center bedlam tonight. Nobody's sitting down now, Spencer, except you and me. Despite Cap Raiders' heroics, Gary Swain, with a goal and an assist coupled with tireless penalty killing, was named the game's most valuable player. Now, recently, I had the chance to talk with Mike Rogers, about this magical evening in Whalers history. Well, well, for me personally, it, it was kind of my Stanley Cup, I guess the seventh game of the Stanley Cup final because we knew what the Russians were about. And I think the biggest thing is we just did not want to get embarrassed. And right. I think that was kind of the, the talk in the dressing room before the game. Let's just go out and play the way that we can. Let's let's play Canadian hockey and and, and kind of, you know, that that's always been that let's be physical but not go, you know, too much and and just kind of go out and 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 play as hard as we possibly can and see what happens and you know at the end of that game and, and to to sit back in that dressing room afterwards and realize you know we be beat world champions we beat one of the best teams that uh, have ever put skates on so obviously again a, a huge huge thrill and uh, something i'll never forget as a postscript to the game the soviets would rebound to reel off six consecutive tour wins including a 10-to-1 drubbing of the Houston Arrows before dropping the tour finale to the eventual Avco Cup champion, Quebec Dordiques. The Whalers, on the other hand, would go on to lose their next three WHA games and in mid-to-late January would stumble further with a miserable 0-8-1 stretch. By season's end, many of the players in this game against the Soviets would never play for the Whalers or any other big league team ever again. But for this one unforgettable night in the insurance city, this patchwork collection of New England Whalers sat atop the hockey world. Nine seconds remaining. That'll do it. The Whalers are going to win it. Blow. Robert saved by Tradiac, and that is it. And listen to this crowd. And they're giving Cap Raider more trouble than the Soviets gave him tonight. <laughs> I think they're right. There's a chance for that only. Listen, but to look at the crowd. Final score, 5-2 to two before a packed house. McElroy passes out and then gets it back to Giroux. Giroux kicking that puck as he backhands it into hot zone. Nesquito whacks at it and gets it out to Mulvey. Mulvey goes crashing in to Dallas. And there's a score by Will Paymont. And Kansas City has got a goal as Will Paymont gets the first goal ever for the home team in this arena. We're back on the show and we're thrilled to have author Troy Treasure, who... You, we have a lot of fans out here in New Jersey, and it's a little genealogy lesson for you. It's a little uh, backtracking history before the Devils and before the Colorado of course. Uh, the birth uh, rights of this franchise belonged in Kansas City, home of the Kansas City Scouts, and 
maybe not be the most memorable or lovable franchise of all time, but in the book Icing on the Plains, Troy Treasure makes their story very interesting, compelling, and outstanding book, which we highly recommend. And thank you, Troy, for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Mark. Oh, you did a great job of setting the scene in the Kansas City sports scene at that time. But what were the conditions so such that people thought that Kansas City had a shot at having a successful NHL expansion franchise? Well, the St. Louis Blues put their Central Hockey League team in Kansas City when St. Louis was a part of the league doubling its size for the 67-68 season. And minor league hockey... Uh, Well, the Kansas City Blues went over very well, Mm -hmm. uh, but prior to that, back in the, primarily in the 30s, well, dating back to the 20s, actually, through the 30s, then World War II, of course, disrupted a lot of things, and then in the 50s, there there were different minor league teams, so the sport at the minor league level was pretty popular. Unfortunately, as far as going to the National Hockey League, there wasn't a building that met all the requisites that the, the NHL would would want. And uh, Kansas City folks were told by Clarence Campbell, among other people, that if that metro area were to construct a new, modern, athletic arena, then Kansas City had a good chance because, as you have alluded to, another league had cranked up. And I don't need to tell you, Mark, and your listeners the reason that Atlanta and Long Island got NHL franchises in 72 was to thwart the WHA from getting to those markets. So in its, in its genesis, it, everything was contingent on a new arena, and ultimately it, was, it, it went through its struggles being constructed. Uh, there were work stoppages, and in fact, there was controversy on where Kemper Arena would end up. It ended up down in the stockyard district, down in the river bottoms of Kansas City, but it, it got built in four groups. They put in bids for the Kansas City franchise. One group got it, called Kansas City Hockey Associates, and, and away they went. That they did. So, it's interesting if you're looking at it, the various expansions up at that, to that time, and this was probably the most challenged expansion. So, and that's for a couple of reasons in my opinion. First of all, you alluded to the World Hockey Association at various points. At one point, I think in 75, there were 31 teams between the NHL and WHA and obviously a paucity of talent to fill those roster spots. So, when the Vancouver Canucks and the Buffalo Sabres came into the fold in the NHL in 70-71, the, you know, by, by the time 74-75 came around, the Canucks had won their Smythe division. The Sabres were in the, were in the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, the Sabres, of course, drafted Perot, then Rick Martin, and Jim Schoenfeld, and Danny Gare. And you could, the, the road to success seemed to be relatively short. And Atlanta and the Islanders, Atlanta, you know, had a kind of a veteran team. They were able to get some decent veteran defensemen, obviously good goaltending. So the Atlanta Flames were respectable right off the bat. The Islanders had a horrendous first season, but that only led them to get Dennis Potvin and then a series of um, incredible drafts in the 70s. So their road to the top was relatively quick there in the NHL uh, Stanley Cup semifinals within uh, three years. On the other hand, by the time you get to 74-75, 
There is the first of all, uh, the, the, this, the, they weren't great draft years. They lowered the draft age in 74, uh, 75, 74, but not they, to fill those rosters out was a. a I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but my my point being, and I'd see if you would agree that the uh, challenge of the expansion rules at that time weren't like Las Vegas was most recently. At that point, not only were the were the expansion rules kind of tough, but there wasn't a lot of talent to go around at that point. And uh, these teams were relatively doomed, both the Capitals and the Scouts, right from the start. That's a long monologue, but do you agree with that? Yes, I do. And far as far as compared to previous expansions, the difference was like night and day. But back in the mid seventies, and actually the the franchises in D.C. and Kansas City were granted in 1972. The other owners in the National Hockey League, they didn't care whether those two teams were successful. That's obvious. I mean, right. the expansion draft process was yes. And, uh, Milt Schmidt, the general manager with the Capitals, and his counterpart, Mr. Sid Abel in Kansas City, had extreme slim pickings from which to choose. And And then you talk about the amateur draft. You're right. In 74, they did lower the age down to 18. And and Kansas City got a good player in Wolf Paymaw. Paymaw was the second overall pick in that amateur draft behind Washington's Greg Jolly. But Kansas City ended up having to pay him a three-year deal, $600,000, just to get this 18-year-old to sign. Now, Paymaw only lasted in Kansas City for two years, so Kansas City only paid him 400000 But the point was, mm-hmm. is, and this is tied in with the, the rival league, too, is that players' salaries just escalated, and Kansas City Hockey Associates, nor a Poland in Washington, had any idea when they were getting into this that uh, the salaries would increase so rapidly. Right. Well, I think that some of the early decisions that Kansas City made weren't bad ones. Uh, Beb Guidlin, who, of course, spent the was in the Stanley Cup Finals with the Boston Bruins in 1974, and uh, Sid Abel, a good, capable hockey man, as they say, as you noted, the first ever draft pick was a hit with Wilf Paymont, with the price tag, of course. The Capitals had their first pick and uh, missed with Greg Jolly. You know, again, it, and it, the goaltending right off the bat, uh, if I recall correctly, Michelle Plass was the first uh, goaltender. So they had a, a decent goaltender in Kansas City right away. But as you said, the, the conditions were ripe for, for failure. And it's incredible when you look back at it that the, the, the Capitals had credit to Abe Pollen because they labored through many years of misery before finally seeing uh, the other side. And Kansas City, of course, didn't have that opportunity. The interesting thing is, you know, when you look at it, Troy, uh, the team moves to Colorado, and that doesn't work. And then to New Jersey, and that really takes a while to to catch on. But my things change. I mean, you know, demographics change, people's tastes change, and with that in mind, Kansas City had been rumored at various expansions over time. And even though it didn't work in the mid seventies, do you think that Kansas City would be a capable alternative for a future expansion or? franchise relocation in the NHL today? Well, I'm in the minority with my take on it, but I I think Kansas City could add to its sports marketplace, and of course there's an NFL franchise and Major League Baseball franchise. I think it could handle either an NBA team or an NHL team. There is a building there. 
it is a modern building. Having said that, it's got about, I'm going to guess, about 10 years on it now. And we, mm-hmm. we all know how these arenas and stadiums seemingly become obsolete right. uh, way before you think. But I, I will say this. It will not be an expansion team if it's uh, if it's the NHL. It, it would be, uh, and I've got an opinion on an individual that could get involved with a group that might be interested in buying, uh, let's just say hypothetically, the Arizona Coyotes or the Florida Panthers mm-hmm. and, and bringing them to the Sprint Center. And that individual's name is Clark Hunt. And he is the son of Lamar Hunt, founder of the American Football League and longtime owner of the Kansas City Chiefs. He's, he's of course, deceased now, but Clark is one of the sons. Another son of Lamar Hunt, um, Lamar Hunt Jr., is a huge hockey guy. He owns the ECHL team in Independence, which Independence, Missouri, is probably best known for its association with President Harry S. Truman, but that's an eastern suburb of Kansas City, and he's put money into rinks in the area. I believe he's bringing in a United States Hockey League team, mm-hmm. one of those developmental uh, teams. You know, a lot of the guys will play in the USHL. You know, they maintain their amateur standing and college eligibility, and a lot of them go on to four-year schools uh, collegiately. Um, but Clark Hunt is the chief operating officer of the Kansas City Chiefs, and he's got along with Lamar Jr., I want to say, I could be wrong, but three other siblings, uh, maybe it's just four, I think two sisters are involved. I, in other words, I think, I'm getting long-winded here too, if if the Hunt family were to get totally involved in the pursuit of an existing NHL team that's for sale, I could see it shaken down for Kansas City returning to the National Hockey League. But let me reiterate, it will not be an expansion franchise again. The biggest question I guess I should have led with is uh, why write this book, Troy? Why write the Kansas City Scouts tome? Like I said before the call, somebody had to do it. God bless you for doing it. Uh, the, the record's out there, but uh, it had to be some driving force for you to capture uh, all this detail and all this uh, great information on this uh, relatively forgotten NHL team. Well, that's a complicated question answer, but on the other hand, not so complicated, I guess. First of all, a book on the Kansas City Scouts had never been done before, and I can understand that, but that leads me into some of the other reasons that I decided to do it. Uh, The Scouts were my first exposure to the sport when I was eight years old, Mm -hmm. and I fell in love with the sport. Uh, Mark Olivas fell in love with hockey for some reason or another, and my reason was the Kansas City in addition, when I began work on the project in the fall of 2016, my mother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and uh, her husband had passed away. So I became primary caregiver for my mother, and uh, she uh, she did pass away in May of this year. But you know, I did I couldn't. I had to leave newspapering. I'd done radio prior. I've kind of done a mix of broadcast and newspapering, as a lot of guys do. But uh, I had the time, uh, basically, to mm-hmm. do the research. And um, 
that was difficult at times. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I loved going through the old newspapers and getting the Jay Greenbergs and the Steve Morantzes of the world who were beat reporters for the scouts. But uh, the most difficult part, actually, was tracking down uh, former characters for this book, primarily right. the former players. Uh, the ones I did get in touch with, uh, most of them uh, participated willingly in the project, and they were wonderful. I had a few that turned me down. I had a few that were willing at the beginning and for whatever reason decided not to participate later. I was very fortunate that I got uh, in touch with uh, the Scouts' lead legal counsel, their general counsel, interviewed him twice in Kansas City. His name's Bob Fisher, G. Mm -hmm. Robert Fisher. And he was a young man back then, um, but he's still alive, uh, you know, obviously. And uh, he's he's got a good memory, and he's extremely helpful with the minutia involved with uh, the ownership group. By the way, Bob was a a minority owner mm -hmm. in the franchise, but he represented them. He spoke uh, to the NHL Board of Governors uh, in this process leading up to the franchise coming to the Kansas City. Also, uh, the young trainer, uh, you mentioned earlier there was uh, there was tragedy involved with this franchise. Right. And uh, the original trainer, early in the first season, 1974-75, killed himself. And his young assistant, a native Kansas City, and because of that, had, he was thrown into a bad situation. And uh, the gentleman that, that died, Gordon Marchant, was uh, uh, this young man's mentor. And in fact, it encouraged Dale. Dale Graham is the young man. And he encouraged Dale to go to college and get a degree, which was rare for athletic trainers back in that day. So uh, Dale was very helpful as a source as well. But uh, it goes back to the players and uh, gentlemen like Robin Burns and Gary Crotto and Randy Rhoda, you know, Peter McDuffie. Dennis Heron. Uh, the last two gentlemen were goaltenders, and uh, in fact, uh, it's funny, I stay in touch with the McDuffies and two of their sons, but interestingly enough in the book, the funny stories is told by Peter McDuff's wife, and long story short, it's in the book, but Peter is with the scouts in Kansas City. He's the backup goalie to Dennis Heron, and they beat the Boston Bruins at the Garden 3-2, it, at that time, it was obviously the biggest win in Scouts history. But back in Kansas City, uh, the McDuffie's apartment was robbed, and uh, right. they left they left some Canadian money. They left a tea kettle, and they left a Sears sewing machine. No, they left the lid to the Sears sewing machine, <laughs> but they took the sewing machine. And 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 so Mary McDuffie is telling me they came back to their apartment this across the Missouri River in North Kansas City, and and she's scared to death. Uh, she's she's pregnant. They they have a young child already, and her husband's on the road. And there weren't cell phones, obviously, back then. So it's 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 little um, stories within the story. Um, that one from Mrs. Mary McDuffie, the wife of one of the scouts goaltenders, that uh, I think adds some spice to to this book. Uh, no question. And one of the things that adds spice to the book too is we we get little glimpses of opponent opponents uh, other people in, involved in the hockey little notes on like guys like Bill Goldsworthy for example and one of the little uh, 
sidesteps you have there is you talk about the legendary Dan Kelly, voice of the St. Louis mm-hmm. Blues, hockey on CBS, etc. And boy, when you hear that voice of Dan Kelly, it's just like the the voice of God in hockey. For myself, you you just you just it's unbelievable. I had a chance to meet him when um, you know he was uh, a broadcaster. He would come into Hartford, and uh, it was a it was a great thrill. But talk a little bit about. Dan Kelly, and uh, I know you've you've had the opportunity to uh, to meet him, and just talk about Dan and uh, how you came to about to include him in this book on the scouts. Well, not unlike you, Mark, I thought he was God. I mean, he <laughs> just, I mean, and he not only was outstanding at hockey, but here in the Midwest, he was the voice of the University of Missouri football games. He did. NFL games when the Cardinals were still in St. Louis before they moved to Arizona. And, and gosh, when you turn on the Blues telecast now, and here is some John. I mean, John, John sounds just like his old man. And <laughs> the, the older that John gets, the more he looks like his old man. Uh, John, by the way, did, John did uh, uh, return a telephone call to me regarding that portion of the book uh, when I, you know, I wrote about his father, but um, I recount in Icing on the Plains that my one and only encounter with Dan Kelly is a true story. It's, it's going to be a sad story, but it's a true one. Uh, in 1988, the Blues were playing an exhibition game at Kemper Arena in Kansas City. It was against the Chicago Blackhawks Mike Keenan was the coach, and I'm pretty sure it was Jeremy Roenick's rookie season with the Blackhawks. Well, right. Dan's broadcasting this game back to St. Louis on KMOX Radio, 50,000 water. And I had a press pass because I was covering the game for Missouri Net, a statewide radio network, mostly small stations across the Show Me State. Well, I just took it upon myself to walk into his booth. And uh, so uh, I, I don't... I can't remember which intermission it was, first or second, or second or third. I think it's in the book, actually. But at the end of the first or second period, whichever one it was, he recapped and then threw it back to Camel Wax. Customarily, they would fill a lot of the intermission with news and weather updates back in St. Louis at the studio. Well, he, he does that. He didn't take off his headphones because, as John confirmed to me, Dan Kelly never wore headsets. He broadcast his entire career just using a handheld microphone as if he was an MC of something. But anyway, I'm getting off the beaten path. Anyway, he turns around, lights a cigarette and notices me standing there. And he goes, who are you? You have a press pass? And I thought I was going to be in trouble, (laughs) the legend. And then he noticed my pass and I completely disarmed him when I said, Mr. Kelly, I think you're the greatest I just wanted to watch your work. And he melted. <laughs> he, he, he was cool from there on out. But here's the sad part of the story. Again, this is the fall of 1988. He reaches back with one of his hands and starts rubbing above his uh, buttocks area and says, my back is killing me. Well, I think about two or three weeks later is when he was diagnosed with spinal cancer. Wow. He died in February of 1989. So uh, 
he only had a few months to live when I met him that night in September 1988 in Kansas City, Missouri. And obviously one of those lessons of life, a good decision for you to take that step and say hello to him because you wouldn't have had yeah, that and, and he, and he Again, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mark. No, I'm sorry. He, he, he understandably wanted to know who the heck this guy, oh, of course. This kid was in his booth. But once I, and by the way, when I said, Mr. Kelly, this is Mr. Kelly, I'm sure, uh, uh, I, I was nervous. Mm-hmm. I was nervous. And, but once I got out, was trying to tell me it was beyond gracious. Absolutely. When we talk about interesting characters, another one, of course, the Kansas City Scouts, none other than the notorious Steve Durbano. And he was uh, part of Scouts history. I think I just, did I read it in your book or somewhere else? He got into a fight and somebody ripped his toupee off. And uh, yeah, that was Dave Hutchison of the. Oh, that's right. Of course, of course, that's right. And so, but question: um, just looking back at giving you an open-ended question, Steve Durbano's impact on the Kansas City Scouts, and you know, he was—I I hate to say—it sounds uh, derogatory. Damaged goods by that point, he had injured his, his wrist or his hand. It wasn't the same player who was a number one draft pick. People forget he was the first-round draft pick, New York Rangers. Did have some talent. But, of course, uh, had some other issues that mitigated that talent. But uh, talk a little bit about Steve's days in Kansas City. Well, he was brought in via trade from the Pittsburgh Penguins about midway through the second season, 1975-76. And he was brought in to try to sell tickets, quite frankly. And in addition to that, uh, they needed some muscle. And if nothing else, Steve Durbano, uh, injured hand and all, could provide muscle. And he would take on all comers in a fight. And as you would look to, prior to the hand injury, I want to say that might have been when, yeah, he was, I was, he was with the Pittsburgh Penguins. and He suffered a serious hand injury in a season opener, but I'm not sure which season that was. Nevertheless, he had hockey skill. And people, is quoted in the book, is saying, the coach, we're talking about Beth here, him getting to settle down, but Abel alluded to the fact that the guy had hockey skill. And so they brought him in. He uh, instigated a fiasco at the odd in Buffalo. You know, the deal with uh, the toupee that actually occurred in the scouts' final ever home game at Kemper Arena. In the tussle, Hutch somehow gets the toupee off, but what particularly infuriated Durbano was Hutch grabbed his stick, I guess, after they fought, and shot the toupee, sort of like Scott Mellon with the rat back <laughs> in the early Florida Panthers days. And that infuriated Durbano, and he he's ejected, and he threw the practice pylons out on the ice. He threw his skates out on the ice, and before this game was over, he had had time to and go enjoy a steak up in the arena club oh. before the game was over. But uh, I, I do want to emphasize in regard to Steve Durbano in my book. Yes, if you're going to chronicle the Kansas City Scouts, you must include Steve Durbano. But his post-hockey life, where he had a lot of you know, legal issues and things like that, I 
I do not belabor those. Um, the man is deceased. So as a result, obviously, he cannot defend himself from the grave. He cannot try to justify some of his actions mm-hmm. off the ice or on the ice. It's all over the Internet how Steve Urbano's life went after he left hockey. TSN in Canada contacted me and wanted me to participate in a podcast about Durbano. Right. And I, I, I quickly got the impression from the producer where this was going to go. And I just told him, I'm not interested in piling on the guy. And as a result, I never heard back from him. So that's what it is. I appreciate your, your approach to that. And I had this discussion, you know, I have a, I have a teenage son and, you know, I have this discussion with him all the time about you you don't know where people are coming from all the time. You don't know what their background was, what their life was when they were a kid and the interdynamics of families and et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So I can certainly... And my understanding is, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Mark, but I, I think Steve uh, and his father had a difficult relationship from, from what I've gathered. Yeah, it was uh, a volatile relationship from what I've heard. I think they lived across the street from uh, the Pappen family, and I, I, I recall them saying that there was, you know, it was, uh, it could be pretty raucous over there to, at the Durbanos. So it's one of those things that Steve Durbano, like most people, did not want to go down deep inside, did not want to go down the road he went down, and uh, you know whatever circumstances came into his decision making at the time uh, ended up. Uh, having extremely negative results for him and those around him. However, um, but I could certainly appreciate your approach to that. On a different note, and somebody whose uh, career shone brightly after he left Kansas City and whose life after that was, was very positive and participating in your book was a guy who could have gone, who could have lost his confidence very much so playing goal for the Kansas City Scouts was Dennis Heron who played well, earned a lot of respect, ended up winning a Vesna Trophy, I believe, with the Montreal Canadiens. Um, you had a chance to talk to Dennis, and how was how his reflections of days in Kansas City? He told me that it was one of the best moves early in his career traded by the Penguins of Kansas City, and he got a lot of games. I kind of equate uh, Dennis's career early on with that of Joe Malosh. And, yeah, very good point. Uh, yeah, they both played on four teams. They were good goaltenders, good young goaltenders, but they just played on, for the most part, terrible teams. Uh, Jill, especially, out in Oakland. And, you know, he went on to tremendous success with the Minnesota North Stars and later the Pittsburgh Penguins, particularly Minnesota. But, uh, yeah, Denny was terrific. Uh, he started playing goal at the age of five when his dad asked him to step into the position. And uh, uh, Dennis has done very well for himself. He got in international sales with some resorts uh, down in South Florida. And since Dennis is bilingual, uh, he he's able to work with potential clients in in France and in some of those islands, Caribbean, where the resorts are. You know, they bring in a lot of Europeans and whatnot. But then uh, he did mention, you know, he's famous for, for getting kidney stones because of the milkshake diet. And, oh, really? I, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I had read, and I think it was one of those old Xander Hollander 
preview books. <laughs> I love those back books. In the year. Oh, I did too. God, I, did too. I love those I, books. I, I got every sport. I got the NBA, the NFL, the MLB. But anyway, I had always been under the understanding that the scouts had asked him to go on this high-protein milkshake diet. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out, then he told me. Oh, that was my idea. And he was just pouring the protein milkshakes down, trying to gain weight. Because as Robin Burns told me, if in the dressing room without his equipment on, if Dennis turned sideways, you wouldn't see him. He he just was thin as a rail. He wasn't all that tall either. Well, anyway, he's working out with Gary Crotto uh, the summer of 1975 in the offseason. Kansas City summers are hot. He's still sucking dummies. All these protein milkshakes well, led to a kidney stone. And uh, the, the story's in the book. Apparently, when Debbie Aaron was taking her husband to the hospital, they, they didn't know what was wrong with him other than he had severe pain in his abdominal area. He was he was uh, pounding on the dashboard of the Heron's car. And I, I've never had a kidney stone and I don't think I want to, Mark, uh, <laughs> just because of the kidney and and where the stone has to go nice. <laughs> to be expelled, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Dennis, Dennis was very helpful with the book, and I appreciated all the players that agreed to work with me. They were fabulous. One question I wanted to ask you is when you've had the chance to get the book to the players, I saw the picture of Randy Rhoda and, of course, talked to Robin Burns, who really liked the book. So what kind of feedback do you get from uh, from the players and those who participated in the book? I haven't gotten any criticism. Um, maybe the guys were blowing smoke up my butt, um, <laughs> but they've, they've been complimentary. Uh, I think I think one of the reasons, and, and Robin mentioned this specifically, I think one of the reasons the guys kind of like it is it takes them back to when they were young men and they were athletes and they were playing in the National Hockey League. In, mm-hmm. in Robin's case, yeah, he he played a little bit with the Pittsburgh Penguins, but as he said, he he was riding the toilet mostly between Pittsburgh and Hershey in the American right. League. Well, Robin's NHL career, for the most part, in its entirety, was the two years playing for the Kansas City Scouts. And uh, I hope you enjoy visiting with Robin as much as I did. He's he's uh, he's an amazing man. I've tried to tell him he needs to write his own book, and I know some of the kids are trying to tell him to write his own book. It's it's an amazing story. But And then Randy, uh, Randy Rhoda, he'd be the first to admit to you that he wasn't any kind of star player, you know, probably a third or fourth line forward. But uh, in his case, he, he just signed a new contract with the Los Angeles Kings, and then uh, practically the same day, uh, Bob Polford left him exposed in the expansion draft, so he moved to Kansas City. He tells them at least uh, a particular one, including their leader. Duffies, they were fabulous. Uh, Gary Crocco, Gary Crocco, I tell you what, he he is an interesting dude because he's very cerebral. At least he was in my conversations, and that makes sense. Mm-hmm. He was the first basically the first Canadian to graduate American college to make it in the National Hockey League. And, uh, you know, uh, Robin Burns can be very, uh, he can be very high-intelligent, uh, cerebral, uh, as I said before. Uh, 
And then Robin, you know, he can put a stick move like a football running back and on a dime be, he, he'll have you laughing so hard right. you're falling on the floor. <laughs> Gary, um, very well spoken and, uh, he, he was very, very helpful with the book. And I, for those that do purchase icing on the planes, I, I hope they enjoy it in its entirety. But I chronicle in the book, uh, Gary, all the way from his youth through St. Lawrence, um, to making it to National Hockey League. And uh, like a lot of people, you know, I'm pretty sure Gary was the first person in his family to go to college. Right. And the alternative in Sudbury, Ontario, was working in the mines. And Gary did that a couple of summers. He was at St. Lawrence. And he, he did it not only to earn money, but he was already smart enough. He wanted the reminder of, I don't want to be a miner all my life like my father and brother. So many thanks to Gary Crotto, too. All the guys were, were very helpful. Someone else you mentioned earlier who was also helpful to you, and I had forgotten or did not know that Jay Greenberg, who I associate with Philadelphia, Philadelphia hockey in general, sure. uh, was a beat writer for the Kansas City Scouts, and I did not know that. Talk about his impact on being able to pull this book together. He had an incredible impact. I don't know of any other big league broadcast or writer. And let's just stay with the writers. I don't know if anybody other than Jay would have sent somebody he'd never met before 100 copies of his clippings while he was working for the Kansas City Star and Kansas City Times. Wow. And I think uh, Jay can kind of fall into the category with the players, too, because Jay was a recent graduate of the University of Missouri Journalism School. I was fortunate enough to be hired in Kansas City. And then he got the scouts beat because all the vets in the sports department, they didn't want to have anything to do with the hockey team. Well, Jay's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Slap shot. You know, I mean, <laughs> he's, he's, he's all for it. It's like he says, I'm 24 years old, and I'm flying all over the country on my own major beat. He loved it. Mm -hmm. Jay was, Jay's insight, uh, obviously, goes without saying, he, having his insight, you know, Jay's, Jay's in the, you know, he was, he was honored by the Hockey Hall of Fame. I don't think they have a wing in the Hockey Hall of Fame for writers and broadcasters, but they're recognized. And, you know, uh, and, I mean, he does first season as the beat reporter, and then he moves on after the first season to the then Philadelphia Bulletin. And then, as you alluded to, Mark, that's where he began his long association with the Philadelphia Flyers. Your book brought back a lot of faint memories in some cases. I did see the scouts play actually live. I saw them at the Boston Garden against Bobby Orr and Brad Park in 75, November of 75. It was one of the 10 games that Park and Orr played together. Bruins ended up prevailing in the in the game. I remember the Goal Magazine cover was Eddie Gilbert of Kansas City. Oh. But um, one stretched postseason event, I think it was after year two, perhaps, but the Washington Capitals and the Kansas City Scouts uh, pack up at the end of the season, go to Japan. Can you talk a little bit about that? I totally had forgotten about that that series of games they played. You can tell our fans a little bit about that uh, that sequence of, of events. Well, that's crazy, Mark, that whole Japanese. I mean, <laughs> what I can tell, 
the NHL had agreed to partner up with Coca-Cola Bottling Company to have some exhibition games in Japan after the season. Well, the scouts in the Capitals were both so bad, so early, or you know, as the 75-76 season progressed, that they had no chance of making the playoffs well before the playoffs were going to occur. So, by default, the Caps and the Scouts were sent to Japan. Uh, they played four games, um, the first two in Sapporo, up in the northern part of Japan, where the 1972 Winter Olympics were held, and they played the other two games in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And, for example, Randy Rhoda told me for the book that the guys loved it. They got a pretty impressive per diem. And uh, Dale Graham, the said that the guys from both teams put on a good show. They had some fights, but it wasn't exact. I guess it was more, you know, the WWF variety or whatever. (laughs) And uh, so they entertained the Japanese, but the Japanese that attended these games were just uh, in awe of what they were seeing. uh, And they found the most interesting, fascinating. Uh, And a player went, Japanese were fascinated with the fact that this person was sentenced to isolation and and sort of like Dennis Lee character in the movie yeah. Slapshot. You feel <laughs> shame and everything and uh and, and the Japanese people by and large are, are very respectful and and, and 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 a lot of them usually are they're not real tall. Well they're looking at these guys out on the ice and of course with the skate blades underneath their feet they, they probably look like giants. But I, I think the most bizarre piece of scouts history is probably involved with Japan because obviously those four games against the Capitals didn't count. And Washington won the first three games. And then they won, you know, they won the first two up north, mm-hmm. won the next one in Tokyo. The Kansas City Scouts had had a, you know, they ended the regular season with a 27-game winless streak. A few ties trickled in there, but they had one in 27 games. Then they lose their first three in Japan, so that's a 30-game winless streak. In the final game of that four-game series, the scouts defeated the Washington Capitals. So it can be said that the Kansas City scouts won their last ever game, but it did not count. <laughs> when I look, speaking of that high point in the Kansas City history, I was curious. <laughs> In your opinion, now there were some high points, victories. I believe they beat the Boston Bruins once. Uh, but if you're, what was the high point of the Kansas City Scouts hockey uh, when things looked good or things were looking optimistic and they they scored a big victory? I know that they, if I recall the book and the times correctly, they actually had a decent stretch through. They're talking about this with Robin Burns uh, through maybe December of '75, and then. Everything just fell apart inexplicably, really. Um, I guess that's that's one question I wanted to ask you is, the, the, I think it was ended up being like a 44-game stretch where they won once. Like, what was the catalyst for that, based on the fact that they actually had a somewhat decent start to the 75-76 season? Yeah, early in October of that season, the uh, scouts were in first place for about 10 minutes. Um mm-hmm. You know, they you know they won a couple and lost a couple and tied it. You know, they're picking up points here and there. But uh, as you alluded to, pretty much in the final season, um, 
everything went to hell in a handbasket. Beth Gillen resigned, and that was a crazy deal right there. It's in the book. Uh, but, but backtracking, before the rink fell in, you asked about the highest point mm-hmm. in scout history. Well, that happened before the collapse in December of 75. They upset the Montreal Canadiens 6-5 to five at Kemper Arena. And I don't need to tell you, the Canadians won the Stanley Cup that year, the first of four straight. Right. And uh, uh, Wolf Payne, uh, then in his second season, uh, registered the first and only hat trick in scouts history. And as Robin said for the book, that was, for the scouts, that was like winning their mini Stanley Cup. And uh, I heard at one point back in the day the California Golden Seals broke some kind of, no, was the Washington Capitals in their first season. They broke some kind of streak, and they found a tin garbage can, and they went out and hoisted it like it was their Stanley Cup. I, I don't think the scouts did anything like that, but uh, it, it certainly was a, a high point uh, uh, for uh, the franchise. And, and then you mentioned the victories. Uh, actually, they, they won uh, both seasons on one occasion at Boston Garden. Of course, the second year, the Bruins didn't have Bobby Orr. But... Uh, yeah, that whole that whole deal down the stretch, I, it just uh, it avalanched. Uh, some acquisitions didn't work out. I mean, the, the Durbano trade, purely from a player standpoint, yeah, they got Chuck Arneson in the deal along with Durbo, but you know they they parted ways with uh, Simone Olay, their first captain, and Ed Gilbert. Eddie had had a Eddie been struggling soaring goals uh, in that second season in Kansas City, but. Um, Reverting back to the 1970 and draft, uh, Simone Millet was an excellent selection by Sid Adel. So, oh yeah, they lost some leadership there, and there was turmoil between the coach and a certain segment of the rest of the room. And Gittelin resigned at the Huff, and Lifer named Eddie Bush from Collingwood, Ontario, came in, and he knew he wasn't going to be able to clean this thing up. But, and then, and while that's happening on the ice, then the, the franchise is. Is uh, is leaking oil everywhere, you know, as a business, and and so because of the confluence of circumstances, uh, Kansas City Scouts played their last game in Tokyo, Japan. <laughs> yes, they did, and of course, from beginning to the end, it's captured here in Icing on the Plains, the rough ride of Kansas City's NHL Scouts by Troy Treasure. Again, I really enjoyed the book. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about Kansas City Scouts history. Congratulations on an outstanding job. And we'll have links in the show notes, of course, where you can, uh, fans can purchase the book directly. But uh, now that you've written the book, Troy, on the Kansas City Scouts, do you have anything else uh, on the horizon, so to speak, from a hockey or sports standpoint that you want to tackle next? Not really in sports. You know, it's probably my next book if I if I do it. And any author will tell you, you you've got to be all in. Uh, you can't do it halfway. But uh, here in the American Midwest, uh, there was a young politician who died on a plane crash at the age of 39, and many people think he eventually would be, would have become president of the United States. And so I'm I'm looking hard at that. But uh, I, it was a labor of love, uh, you know. When you look back on your childhood, I think most folks will agree that, uh, you know, some of it becomes kind of fantasy. I don't know 
well, when you're young, your imagination runs. And mm-hmm. So as I look back now, I guess I was uh, 49 when I started the project, uh, or maybe just 50 and 50. I'm 53 now. Anyway, uh, you know, it took me back to my childhood, and uh, that was a fun part of my childhood, hockey, and uh, uh, really enjoyed it. You, you tell Robin Burns, anybody listening, Tell Robin Burns he needs to write his book. Mark, I think you'll agree. He just <laughs> has an amazing story. I mean, he changed. I mean, people, he changed hockey. He changed the game. He it, invented the hockey visor. Right. <laughs> you know, and you know, but and he played. I wasn't a superstar by any stretch of the imagination, and he overcame childhood childhood adversity, mm-hmm. health wise, and uh, uh, just an uh, amazing guy. You sure is, and you have to look past the self-effacing humor and everything and look at his list, his endless list of accomplishments off the ice and having accomplished all that and staying extremely humble and grounded uh, says a lot about mm-hmm. him. And, uh, you know, I appreciate, because uh, eventually, I, I, obviously, we had talked with Robin in our uh, previous episode to recording this, and that was, uh, you know, directly as, as a result of of you putting me in contact with him. So we greatly appreciate that. And more importantly, greatly appreciate you bringing the Kansas City Scouts back to life. Great effort on your part. Thanks so much for being here today. And Troy, we look forward to uh, staying in contact as well. Mark, thank you. And I just want to give you personally a shout out. These podcasts are great. I particularly love the one with Randy Maneri, uh, former Atlanta Flames. I mm-hmm. guess he started with the Detroit Red Wings, but I remember him primarily with the Atlanta Flames and the LA Kings. I love the Dennis Sobchuk podcast you <laughs> did because as a kid, I lived the Stingers games on Cincinnati's, well, big one, WLW. You know? <laughs> and uh, I just love how you're tackling hockey history and keeping it alive. Buddy, you keep up the good work. I sure will, Troy. Thanks so much for the inspiration, kind words, and look forward to talking to you again real soon. I thought it was fitting to conclude this show, which had a real 19, mid-1970s feel to it with the expansion Kansas City Scouts, international competition, and the World Hockey Association with an interview between Stan Fischler and Howard Baldwin, who was the president of the World Hockey Association and, of course, was the founder of the Whalers franchise. And they talk about the challenges facing the game in mid-70s. It's a nice little time capsule and prescient as uh, both looked uh, to the future of what would help get the game back in order after a uh, a long and brutal battle between uh, the two leagues, the NHL and the WHA. Thank you, Spence. Uh, the man on my left, a very happy man right now, is Howard Baldwin, who is the president of the Whales and a man who has some interesting ideas about international hockey. What I want to know is whether there's ever going to be an intercontinental hockey league. Well, I don't know about an intercontinental hockey league, but I can see in the future there being a division that plays during the regular season, an intertwined schedule with our league, and uh, we go over there for a uh, series of games, and the games count in the standings. Uh, I think that that's what we're heading towards, and I think that would be good for hockey. What about this Whaler team? How do you explain this first period, Howard? <laughs> a lot of people were feeling sorry for your club before the opening face-off. Well, we, you know, we've had kind of a fall where we've struggled a bit, you know. We've been inconsistent, and the unfortunate thing is is that we've played better on the road than at home. But uh, here we are tonight playing without Abrahamson, Lee, and so it really are three top defensemen. 
and we're leading three to one. I don't want to explain it. I just want to sit back and enjoy it and hope that 40 minutes from now um, the score is the same or even more lopsided than it is now. Um, I hope we can keep it up because it's really exciting for us and for our fans. Howard Baldwin, one of the most candid executives in uh, professional hockey. A lot of people are wondering what's going to happen in the uh, great long war between the NHL and the WHA. What do you see happening? Will there ever be a merger? Well, I think that um, we all better get smart and, and better get together and at least talk about what's good for professional hockey and what's, what's in the best interest, not only for ownership, but for players and also for the fans. I think that the, what you see now is a very bad situation. And um, the problem is, is that we all can't get together and, and talk about it. And that's because half the people have their heads buried in sand and the other half the people want to do something about it. And we got to get more people that want to do something about it because it's a great game. And, uh, you know, the fans are reacting by staying away at the turnstiles. And that tells me anyway, we better pull our heads out of the sand and get together and put a better product on the ice and a more competitive product on the ice. So there'll be a few people out of business. Well, you got uh, detente with the Soviet team. You seem to be able to work out a pretty good uh, schedule with them. How come you can't get detente with the NHL, or will you ever get it? Do you think it'll ever happen, Howard? Well, I think it'll happen because I think they got some smart people over there that realize that in the best interest of hockey, everybody should get together in some way. I don't know whether it's a merger or what, but we all should sit down and figure out what's best for professional hockey, what's best for the franchises and for the players and for the fans and come up with a logical solution. And as long as people will recognize there's a problem, then they got to realize that there's a solution to it and sit down and try to solve it. If they do that, it can be solved. But if we all just try to avoid it, then we can't solve it. Thank you for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. If you enjoy listening to the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes. This helps make our podcast more visible and accessible to hockey fans around the world. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please contact me at prohockeyalumni.org or via social media at prohockeyalumni. The Pro Hockey Alumni greatly appreciates your support. <laughs>